You're listening to The Morning Muster, where we get sailors together to listen to the weather report and, well, to talk about the most important topics of the day. So grab a cup of hot chai. Or a coffee. I'm Teresa Carey. And I'm Ben Carey. This podcast is produced by Morse Alpha. We offer rigorous coastal and offshore sail training expeditions. Check out morsealpha.com. stoked to be back. It's been a month or so since our last episode, but uh, I wanted to let y'all know we do have some spots left on our summer expeditions uh, mid-season. We've got a couple open bunks left, so jump on those if you can. We'll be at the Cruisers University again this spring down in Annapolis. Hope to see y'all there. So today's episode, we have got Bean Gifford and John Worth on, and we're talking about sailing at night and watch standing and of course, you know, general seamanship, but uh, this was a really great episode. I love chatting with both of them. So let's get to it. Hope you enjoy it. So, Bean, tell me, what have you been up to since we last chatted? Oh my God, thank you for not asking me, when are we gonna be back in the water? I feel like everyone asks me that question lately. All right, backing up, we have been hauled out for almost two years, which is insane, but um, we are doing a major refit on our boat. Uh, we're calling it the uh, the 40-year refit, all kinds of numerology around that, but we have a, a boat that has been used hard, circumnavigating with our kits, and we're making it into our own as empty nesters, getting ready to head back to tropical islands this year. Whoa, no children? No children. The they have all fledged. Wow. I, I know. What? I know. <laughs> Crazy. Gosh, time is flying. And where have you been with this vessel? Well, Catch we left from Puget Sound. <laughs> this vessel. Uh, we left from Puget Sound in 2008. And we went down to Mexico for a couple of years. And then we did a leisurely westabout circumnavigation that included hanging out in Australia for a while because we went broke and I got a job in Sydney. Um, so about a year and a half in Oz. And then mostly just seasonally, slowly working our way west on a mostly conventional circumnav, downwind circumnav path. Um, the one divergence from maybe what might be considered typical is that we went around South Africa instead of up through the Red Sea. Just not really excited about the piracy situation up there, not wanting to test that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But we got back to Mexico actually four years ago, which is way too long. and. Uh, to be here, but the pandemic parked everyone, right? So we've been here a lot longer than planned and, and kind of the universe unfolded as it was meant to there because I've ended up having to do a lot of uh, elder care support for my parents um, up to losing my mom uh, last month and transitioning mm -hmm. our kids to land in college. Our oldest just graduated in, uh, last year. And oh my is, God. I know, I know, isn't that nuts? So yeah, our son's working um, in Portland, uh, Portland on the West Coast, not the East Coast for you guys, right. uh, you maniacs there. Um, yeah. And our daughters are in Bellingham, Washington, going to college, adulting, having a blast. Amazing. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I totally missed that they were college age. I, that just happened like that. Bam, you know, it's wow. rubber time uh, with the pandemic, I think. Yeah, right. You're right. That's a good point. That's a good point. Okay, cool. That's awesome. Now, John, tell me about, I know you're working on the ferries right now. Is that right? Uh, yes. Right here in Rockland? I am. That's sort of my uh, active retired role. Oh, active retired. I like that. It sounds good. I want to do that. 
uh, where have you been before this? Give me the background on where you've been. Well, I, I've been working on the water since 1973. I started uh, wind jamming uh, as a deckhand in Camden. Mm-hmm. Which boats? I was on the mercantile and the captain of the mercantile and the mistress. Uh, uh-huh. Uh, working for less Bex. Why, why work for more when you can work for less? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, uh, I uh, liked that business so well, and I was hawse piping along. I got a, uh, the bug to own my own schooner, so I bought a, a one that needed to be completely rebuilt and brought it to Belfast. Uh, my wife and I and a team put that together, the Sylvina Beal. We ran that for five years out of Belfast. Oh, sure. And then while I was doing that, I met the, the tugboat operator in Belfast. He actually jumped down on the dock one day and he said to me, John, would you take a tug to Eastport? And I said, I, I, didn't, I don't know anything about tugboats. And he goes, well, you know how to run a large boat. I've seen you run the, the schooner around the harbor. And I said, oh, okay. So the next thing I know, I was running tugboats for him. And then uh, I bought that company in 89 and ran it for 15 years. And then uh, I was getting a little antsy to do something else. So I went over to start teaching at Maine Maritime Academy. I was just teaching, uh-huh. just teaching the fun classes. I was teaching tug and barge and work boat. And then while I was there, they said, you've got a hundred ton license. Can you, you know, sail license? Can you take the boat and, uh, on some trips? So I did that for eight years. Uh, oh, some really cool. wonderful trips there, which I really enjoyed. And then uh, I became faculty there. And then I recently retired 2017 and decided I didn't really want to just sit at home. Uh, so I've been continuing to work on tugboats and ferries as a relief captain, which is beautiful because they can call you and say, John, you want to do four days out at Vinyl Haven? And I can say, I'll do two. <laughs> nice. Um, and, and I actually, I, I was running the ferry yesterday uh, out to Vinyl Haven. Oh, you are. And so it's it's uh, it's worked out great. I I just love working on the water and keeping my license active and working with students. I have a lot of students that are out there in the business uh, that uh, keep in touch with me, and it's, it's kind of fun to to watch their maritime careers. Uh, develop and expand and they're on everything from tall ships to tugboats so uh john i gotta i gotta say like i, I was a collegiate sailor and racing with main maritime up in castine is actually some of my very best memories uh, oh, from excellent. college so beautiful yeah e- excellent yeah yeah they, uh, we've always had a really really strong sailing program there and um i think it's kind of unique to main maritime academy that we own a, a schooner and a couple schooners actually and uh and we have all those sailboats and we we get people from all over the world uh, coming to race and sail there, so it's fun. I, my background is also it's in sailing. I mean that's where I really love. But I yeah. found out that in order to make money, um, I had to work on work boats and tugboats. I've owned quite a few different sailboats, and you know I've had a friendships loop and a yawl. But now I've gone to the dark side, and I own a, a 36 foot Grand Banks that I cruise new, in New England. Yeah, she's beautiful. I've seen the photographs. John, what were you teaching at uh, Maine Maritime? Um, I taught, I first started out teaching uh, a lot of just the practical courses like practical seamanship, you know, rope work, wire splicing. Uh, I taught some navigational classes. And then as I continued there, it's it's a little bit like jumping into the tar pit. They just keep adding things. Uh, I taught rapid radar plotting. I taught uh, work workboat operations, which is basically understanding everything that you need to know to, to uh, jump on any kind of workboat and 
and make it work. Oh, the, the class I enjoyed the most there was tug and barge. Yeah, we 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 have a hundred, we have a eighty foot tugboat and a hundred twenty foot barge, and take students out and learn learn how to crash into stuff without doing any damage, <laughs> and, and teach them how to basically, you know, be a master of of a towing vessel and all that that entails. And uh, it's been fun. Right, I'm trying to. Th- I worked on the boat, and and I'm trying to. Remember, I think it was 1998. Were you around at that point? No, I started 2003 on the boat, and okay. Um, Oh, okay. And, and really? they had developed the Bowden at that point into the training vessel for their VOT, the Vessel Operations Tech Program. And, it, yeah. and every uh, student in that major had to do a two-week trip up to Nova Scotia. Uh, oh, it, was, cool. it was where we would get all the STCW stuff checked off. and uh, right. But it was also a really good experience for people that you know, we're going to become tugboat captains, but to actually get out on a sailing vessel and appreciate the environmentals and the things you really have to know on a sailing vessel that you can easily transfer to any kind of other uh, maritime uh, operation. Gotcha. So I want to ask you guys, what can you recall your first time sailing or, or being on the water at night running a boat? I can. It's, it's a long time ago. It is. I can. Yeah, you can. Tell me about oh, it. I got a story. Okay, go, go, John. Go, John. Well, my, my first time of running a boat of any consequence uh, was when I was uh, asked to take a tug and deliver it from Belfast to, uh, where, where was I going? I was going to Eastport. And right. I was pretty young and I didn't know uh, much about tugboats. And the radar was barely operational. The compass hadn't been swung in uh, probably 20 years. And I left in the nighttime, headed down, you know, Egawagan Reach, straight up the coast. And I remember at the time that I was scared to death. Uh, I was using really rudimentary tools. And uh, I think it gave me a nice uh, appreciation for how much you really need to be prepared to sail at night. I made it up there, all was good, had a happy ending, but I, I do remember that very well. It's like, I'm not gonna do that again. Uh, I, I'm, gonna, mm-hmm. I'm gonna do this better. And, uh, and I think over the years, it, it's gotten better and better. And were you by yourself for that? I, I just had another person on board, an engineer. So okay. single person bridge. With a yeah. with a radar that would only work for an hour at a time, um, and I actually <laughs> I felt lucky that I had uh, some local knowledge going down the Agamogan Reach and Casco Passage. But after that, I was kind of on my own, and I was mm-hmm. all by myself up on that bridge, and uh, it was a nice moonlit night. That was helpful, but I do remember that. Uh, that I, I gained a real appreciation for making sure all of your equipment is operational and good. Um, it was it was a really challenging trip, and uh, uh, I fell in love with tugboats after that. But at the same time, I I decided that I was never going to go go out at night like that. Cool, Ian. You had you said you had a story on that. I do. My very first time sailing at night was actually a fairly unforgettable experience. Um, and it was a race, uh, and it was my second date with my now husband. Uh, this would have been in the fall of 1991. Um, and I wanted a break from racing 
uh, the dinghies, FJs and stuff that we had at the college. And I'd met this cute sailmaker on a, on a prior race, just as like, you know, rail meet basically. <laughs> and um, so this is a really cool opportunity for me to go in this overnight race. I had nothing like it, but I, I'd gotten into sailboat racing just, you know, really in college into racing and was like, I could not do enough. I loved it so much. Um, to go overnight was like a real cool challenge. And it started somewhat ignominiously. Um, we drifted stern first across the start line because there was so much current and so little wind. And that's okay. We got over, we got on our way. Eventually the wind picked up and I wish I could remember the name of this race. It's part of like the off soundings in uh, out of Fisher's Island Sound that you go out around Block Island up into Narragansett Bay and then finish off Connecticut in the morning. And we actually had this... Um, unforgettable, you know, moments on the backside of Block Island, which was also my first time sailing in kind of ocean conditions, ocean sea states. I had gone to sleep while there was no wind and was just in a little pipe berth on a J-35 below deck and woke up getting tossed around. And you know what that can be like. And I did the predictable thing. I got very sick, went up to the cockpit and I'm thinking, great. I'm like, you know, I'm trying to impress this guy. <laughs> And I'm, and I'm just, the first thing I do is get seasick. But lured rail touched nothing but water. <laughs> I think right. I, I passed. <laughs> A pro. Um, and then we won the race. We won the race in the morning. <laughs> wow. But this Fantastic. huge turtle off the backside of Block Island, I it didn't occur to me that there was sea life like that. I don't know. I was I was naive. I'd been racing dinghies and rivers and things. Um, uh-huh. It didn't occur to me that that kind of magnificent sea life was going to be out there waiting. I gotcha. And how was the watch standing at that point? On the boat, that little tiny boat. <gasps> there was no watch. There was on the 35 footer. It's just funny. Yeah. It's like smallish now, you know, maybe by modern cruising standards, but it's like, that was huge. <laughs> 1991 I for see. me. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, everybody all the time, like grab a nap yeah. if you absolutely have to and skip right. won't get you. Yeah. Yeah. I did a race like that around, uh, what was it? The Monhegan race from Portland, Maine around Monhegan or close to Monhegan mm-hmm. and then back. And, you know, it's, it's a eh, 30 some odd hour race or so. And it's a. Uh, it's just all hands the entire time, and by the time you get to the finish line, you're just spent, <laughs> spent. So it's probably probably similar to that, I would guess. I bet it's very similar. It's exhilarating at the end, and then you just collapse and you're trashed for days. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But um, yeah, as far as watch standing goes, at that point, it was uh, it was I was doing it with a bunch of kids, and I was the mm-hmm. captain, and they were mostly running the boat, and I was just kind of standing back as uh, you know they needed just needed a license on that boat at the, that point. Yeah. Right. So John, when we left, our kids were four, six, and nine years old. Oh my god! And they were very cute, but they were not effective at standing watch. <laughs> Actually, that's not entirely true. Um, so early, awesome uh, sailing at night experience for us was coming down the U.S. West Coast uh, with all three kids and Jamie and I. Um, we actually did not have them on board for leaving Puget Sound. We picked them up in San Francisco just so to manage experiences and bank good ones on the water. Um, and we're coming down, I think, to Morro Bay. And Jamie's on watch, and he's a little tired. And and so he goes and gets our son, who'd been dying to stand watch. He's nine years old. And Niall is so thrilled at the possibility that he's going to be standing watch at night. That, you know, he's like getting all his gear on and his harness and his tether and his this and his that. Um, and, you know, first of all, by the time he does that, he's exhausted and he falls asleep for like 20 minutes. But then 20 minutes later, he's up. He's like, what did I miss? And Jamie's like, well, you just missed the dolphins. Oh, man. Because we had actually been seeing a lot of dolphins, you know, in bioluminescence as they go streaking through the water around you. And, and, he said, and so Jamie's like, but listen, just sit here and look, look there. And if you see a dolphin, 
uh, this is where it's going to, this is probably where it's going to show up and, you know, look around and then wake me up in 10 minutes or wake me up if you see anything. <laughs> and Jamie would get a 10 minute cat nap. Alarm goes back off again and he's up and he's sort of rested. And meanwhile, Niall, Niall was the kind of kid, is the kind of kid who we could be, we could give him directions and know he would do it. Our daughters, less so, but our son, solid. And uh, so he turned out to be an incredible watch aide because he could be that buddy that helped the on watch stay more alert and awake by having someone to interact with while we were up there. Hmm. Cool. Very helpful. And how how old is he at this point? Nine. That first, he was nine, okay. Yeah, nine years old. Trying to gauge, you know, thinking about Haven, when's that going to happen? <laughs> right? Every kid's different though, right? So like, right. Um, yeah. I'm trying to think our daughter, it all gets a little spongy, you know, where were we when? Yeah, actually, uh -huh. they, they would have been helpful. Um, certainly, once we were leaving Australia, what would have been three years later, uh, so they would have been like, you know, seven, uh, nine and 13, uh, or 12 and 13. They were absolutely helpful at, at standing watch. We never gave them watch responsibility. They were more like a team to help us get rest yeah. when conditions were easy. I'm not a fan of giving kids watch responsibility just based on unfortunate events and uh, the burden that that potentially means for them. Behan, I'm, I'm curious, have your children uh, continued with your enthusiasm for sailing? Are they owning and looking for boats themselves? So our son's 23, and I'm certain that he will someday uh, travel far under sail, uh, probably his own boat again, no question. Um, he had the world's or best, or the college kids' like best summer job possible because he had a 50 ton master mariner license and so he would work on boutique cruise ships in alaska going up into glacier bay and a lot of the work is really you know it's not glamorous work you know he's everything from you know literally swabbing the decks to uh throwing food into the grinder at night when they're far, fair enough distance to to put it in the water um but he got to have the most incredible summers with the, you know, and the wildlife they would see and the boutique ships meant for some nice experiences. You got to know the like 30 people on the boat that week. Um, and then as a college kid too, I mean, your room and board are, are covered. You have no expenses. You're just putting it all in the bank. Um, it was so much better than, you know, being back at home and stuffing grocery bags or flipping burgers or whatever he might've done otherwise. He loved it. Right. Yeah. Um, but now he's looking for more conventional work in grad school and those plans. But someday, someday. Our oh, daughters dear. are travelers, but not necessarily sailors. And that's cool. Um, they may mm -hmm. or may not end up on boats again. Interesting. Right. I mean, that's what I did right out of school, too. I worked on the, the wind jammers up here. Same kind of deal, you know, room. All you can eat. The more you eat, the more you mm -hmm. make, we always used to say. <laughs> but um, I want to go back to what you were talking about and ask you both. You were mentioning that the kids weren't quite ready for the responsibilities of watch standing. What, let's talk about what are those responsibilities at uh, night? True, right. Yeah, well at night, I mean, ultimately, I guess it's the same as the day. You're keeping everyone safe and rested and making sure the boat is going where it's supposed to go. And most important probably is you're not actually hitting anything, you're piloting appropriately and, and <laughs> not getting into trouble. Um, and night or day, they're just, they're, they're the same, uh, it's just, what you have to deal with and how your senses are compromised, I guess, that are the most different. Yeah, so how are those senses compromised? Let's talk about the details a little bit. Some of them are enhanced, right? Like, I just love how you can be in the cockpit at night and every sound is magnified. Every every little uh, sound on the water to me then is like, 
wh what do I have to look out for? My last overnight passage actually has been almost two years now. And uh, when we were coming up here to haul out again, or a little, oh, I had, yeah, almost two. Um, hmm. And it was whales. I had to listen for whales. It was a new moon. It was pitch black. There was nothing to see unless we were close mm -hmm. enough to a, sh a shrimper that they were going to destroy our night vision. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. And there are a lot of whales up in the sea in at this time. And it was incredibly nerve wracking. And I did actually have a whale. I never saw it. I heard it. I smelled it. It was really close. And I was freaked out because they're beautiful at a safe distance and they're terrifying up close because they can sink your boat in a heartbeat. Really uh, interesting thing you just said was you could smell it. Yeah, they're stinky. And I think that's one of those th things about uh, being on watch at night is that you're using all those senses. You don't think mm -hmm. smell would be an important factor at night on a boat, but it really is. Yeah. It really is, you know, like yeah. this, for instance, the smell of uh, exhaust fumes. Yes. Sometimes it, that will linger. You can't see the boat, right. but you can smell it. You're like, okay, I think there's a boat around here somewhere. Yeah. So smell actually ties into a really important nighttime sailing experience we had that is, you know, people always want to know what's the scariest thing sailing around the world. And it's supposed right. to be pirates or storms. And, you know, spoiler, <laughs> we've actually never been in a storm <laughs> by definition. <laughs> um, that's very Excellent disappointing job. somehow. <laughs> yeah, well, you know what? We got such great information available and that common sense and seasonality and you got it. Um, and um, we get to choose when we go. Yeah, that's right. There you go. Yeah, we get to choose. John and um, I don't get to choose when we go. <laughs> Right? So actually, Schedules. that would be really interesting to hear about as a, a differentiated experience. Yeah. So we were sailing from Bermuda to Connecticut, and it was messy because the Gulf Stream is not that monolithic thing, right? It's all of these crazy meanders and filaments and whatever they're called. And um, it's beautiful, you know, like a data visualization. And it's not a picnic when you're being tossed around in it. And we were really getting tossed around. Um, and I'm on watch and it's like Murphy's Law. When something happens, of course, it's like, oh, dark 30, right? And it was in the wee hours and I'm sitting up there by myself, sort of hanging on, pretty sure there's no one else out there but us. And and I, I smell that smell, that, uh, you know, garbage burn drifting off of the shore in a less developed country. Um, mm -hmm. And I think, oh no. Uh, actually, I'm sure I didn't say, oh no, I said something that you probably don't want on your podcast. Um, it's there's plastic burning oh yeah right like what can it be i my boat is yeah. plastic is yeah it's full of wires coated with plastic and and one of these is burning there's no question about that smell once i sort of uh -huh. snapped to what it was um it was terrifying this is absolutely you know we have th probably three really scary experiences from our circumnavigation i can't call one of them the worst this is one of those three because we know we if our boat is actually on fire may have minutes to get off of it. Um, so I wake up Jamie and I tell him what I smell and he's up immediately and he's like, yep. And he uh, goes and gets Niall up, our son, who at this point I think is 18. And uh, Niall, and he tells Niall to get the ditch kit ready. And I'm like, basically prepare. And we're, wow. we just leave our daughters asleep because we figured if that's what has to happen, we'll get them at the last minute. Um, the three of us are gonna do what needs to be done meanwhile. And, you know, proceed now with like the 90 longest seconds of my life uh, where we tracked down the source of that smell. Uh, and what had happened was that we had an old MOB pole, which we just closed up actually, because 
that's dated. Um, but the mm-hmm. MOB pole, the PVC pipe that ran along the starboard hull in our aft cabin where that lived, our boat's pushing 40 at this point, um, it had cracked over time. And the sea state was so nasty in that Gulfstream washing machine, it was forced up in there through cracks and was spilling out in just little jet ways into the aft cabin, into a solar charge controller and shorted it Mm. out. Bless my husband for having a fuse where it should have been because that probably saved us from having a big fire in the boat. By the time we found it, it was already, it was okay. But it was just that moment of, of sheer terror of there is something burning. I know it's burning. I have to find it. And, and then realizing, actually, I think the great takeaway from it was that we did really well as a team, tracking it down, getting our son in, in motion to, like, to actually prepare us with the dish kit um, and our life raft if we needed those things. Mm-hmm. Excellent. You know, that is so quintessential, like watch standing. This I want to talk about nighttime and watch standing. And, and you think, oh, we're wa- avoiding ships and we're making sure we're staying on course and all this. But there's those things that happen on the boat that you're, that's what you're watching as well. Really important subject right there. Cool. Smells. John, any thoughts? Yeah. Any, I like yeah, the smell smells. of whales better than the smell of burning plastic. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Totally. Have you ever had a situation like that, John? C- coast-wise, um, anytime you go downwind of an egg rock, you can get a ley line there because you, you definitely get a, a smell from that. Mm-hmm. I think it's uh, using smell uh, is, is pretty important. Um, I think what Bian said, though, about smelling things on your boat, uh, you know, there's electrical burning smell, there's plastic burning smell, there's galley smell. All of those things, I think, <laughs> is part of really good watchkeeping is to be constantly making a decision to go investigate something right away when you smell it, because you usually don't have very long. And as she was saying, mm-hmm. you know, a fire on a vessel is is uh, something that no seaman wants to uh, encounter. And... Mm-hmm. Uh, Electrical smells are ones that probably bother me the worst, uh, especially on a on commercial vessels. If you smell uh, that, you, you can't mistake it. It's that sort of ozone-y smell. If you smell it, there's probably some problem somewhere. So yeah, I think I think sense of smell on a boat, uh, especially in the in the watchkeeping mode, is really important. Uh, on the boat, and when we set up our watches, we had you know plenty of crew. We had twelve students that were all there anxiously wanting to become mariners. And so you would set up your, your watches would all have four people on them. And one of them would be standing a bow watch. One of them would be back by the wheel steering. One would be basically navigating and passing information from the, you know, the uh, uh, chart station. And then one would just be walking the boat, going into the engine room, going into the galley, going into the living quarters. And that we would encourage them to do just what uh, we've just been talking about is to that that person that's going through all those spaces to trust yourself. If you smell something, you know, either investigate it or report it. It was it was a luxury to have a crew, you know, four people standing a watch at a time. Most of my boats didn't have that luxury. But and then they would rotate through. So every 30 minutes, another person would be doing that. And. you know, it was it was interesting to see what they would come up with. Sometimes it was uh, just a uh, craziness, you know, some, something smelled bad in the galley from some cooking. But sometimes they would come up with mm-hmm. things that uh, were important and life saving. So, yeah, it was sense of smell. Definitely. That's one of the, the top. 
I love that. So trusting the least of your crew, and especially, I mean, you're in an instructional position there, but validating people by hearing what they have to say and following up on it instead of writing it off because, ah, oh, no, you don't know what you're talking about yet. We've had like our kids when they were small and wouldn't in theory have known what they were talking about yet, help us identify things that they heard um, or saw that we did not, uh, that could have been a real problem if we hadn't. So I, I love that you call that out, listening mm -hmm. to your crew. Yeah. I, I think it is definitely, uh, uh, well, it fits under that big, broad uh, topic of bridge resource management, but it even goes down to children that are sailing on a boat, is trust people when they say something because they they probably, uh, they should be encouraged to like volunteer information, even if it's, it's not, doesn't develop into anything bad it's like, oh yeah, let's, let's go check that out. You know? And, it, and it, I think it makes it right. Makes... No, seriously, like high five remote, because that, I think that's so, so important. Um, <laughs> Jamie and I professionally now, or the way we support ourselves is that we coach people who want to go cruising and almost every couple that we work with has someone for whom this is like seriously the dream and they've done a bunch of boating in their past life and things like that. And the other one is like, I'm along for the ride and I'm totally game with that, but I have none of the training or instincts or experience and, and it's helping them, um, uh, I guess validate that they are also very, very real contributors. They may not feel like they are, but they really can um, be such an important part of the crew. And you have to listen to them and not, not, um, not get them to self-edit by squelching them, because you never know when that's going to be really important. Yeah, good point. Really well said. I like that self-editing because you know we teach sailing, and so we have five students on the boat all week, and that that they they self-edit a lot and trying to yeah. bring out their yeah. questions or their concerns they're like i didn't think it was a big deal or something right. like that like i don't know enough that maybe that's normal yeah so yeah. just uh, we try to get them to just anything you think of or see or notice say it you know no right. judgment here you got to just go for it and that's what helps us all be better sailors Yep. So, so one of the reasons we love recommending people to your sailing program at Morse Alpha is that you have this, well, you have this orientation, but you, you help couples work together. But then at the same time, with, there's this couple dynamic that can happen where, again, there's the more and the less experienced one, and they're there maybe to learn how to sail together. But part of that is maybe this one person actually has to learn how to sail on their own first. Um, before we went cruising, I married a professional sailor. And, you know, I kicked around in a dinghy. I really had no knowledge <laughs> more than that, um, is that he had for a, a present for me, got me a, like a two week cruising training program on a sailboat with another woman who'd circumnavigated. And it was the best thing ever because I didn't automatically look to see what would Jamie say? What would Jamie do? Mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. I had to figure stuff out on my own instead. Yep. It's funny when I, I say I teach people sailing and, and then I think about it how much I actually stand back and let them figure it out and then, you know, help them after they've already done something. But there's a lot of stepping back when you're teaching sailing. And I think that's like you're saying, you just need that chance to figure it out yourself and not rely on the other person. I think you've got super a, you've important. Got, you've got another career Ben, at Maine Maritime because that's that's what they teach. That's the how that's the way they do it. Is it you get them out on a tug. You, you tell them what the dangers are and then you let them do it until just yeah and then you just have to know when to pull the handles away from them before you actually crash into something uh but yeah those are all really good uh, teaching techniques yeah you learn much more right by do by doing it you do yeah John, i think we I all told do you some of my best collegiate sailing memories were being up in castine with uh racing against those uh those folks and i gotta tell you 
to, to this, you know, like 20-ish year old up there for sailing, but then seeing the way that um, the, uh, what are they, uh, do we call them cadets? I'm not sure what the right terminology is. Yeah, they still call them uh, The students so. there yep. could, okay, were maneuvering boats, like bow and stern thrusters and stuff like that. It was like, oh, sexy. <laughs> you know, like, man, I want to do that someday. I'm still waiting, but maybe someday. That's cool. Um, just quick aside, John, when you were work, hang on a second. When you were working there, was Peg Brandon? Peg was there actually. Yep, she, um, yeah, she was. She was a great uh, colleague and shipmate. Um, I, I had the pleasure of doing a couple of trips to Halifax for these. The senior trip I was talking about, and she went as train mm-hmm. training officer. I went as captain. Um, oh, sweet. And she, she's a an amazing uh, mentor for young mariners. Right. You know, she when I, I did SEA as a, as a college student in my junior year, and she was the captain of the uh, the Westward at that point. Oh, yeah. Yeah. She... Yeah. So when I was on uh, student in SEA, we had, of course, watch standing, you know, very regimented um, educational training ship. And so broken into three watches and you're following those standing orders and you're doing your boat checks, you're doing that rotation like you mentioned on, on the boat and where you're standing the helm, and then you move to the bow watch for the next hour, and then you're on the boat check for the third hour, and then you're doing navigation or whatever it happens to be for, for that fourth hour. And, um, you know, on when we do our sailing trips, we actually run the boat that way because I have five students on the boat, and you kind of need to divvy up the jobs in that way, which is totally different than the way you have your boat running being, I know. Um, but that's because of it's a personnel issue. And um, I think I just was wondering, John, in your experience, the boats you've worked on where you're sailing overnight and if, if you've done lots of that, has it been that way? Is it very, uh, you know, broken up into, you know, each person has their own little job well, type thing? thinking about this discussion, uh, as I was over the last couple of days, I realized that my career has had so many different types of bridges you know, yeah. I've I've sailed like beyond what I've just been myself and my wife or my kids, uh, and and that's one kind of bridge resource that you've got to figure out how you're going to use it. Uh, but we would, uh, but on the Bowden, we were in the training mode, which was uh, significantly different, uh, where you've got a lot of people that are really interested and really into it, and you want to uh, teach them the best practices. Uh, on my yacht or my different sailing boats I had, you have to decide uh, how much you're going to sail with, you know, just a, my wife is a, loves sailing with me, but she's not a terrifically engaged mariner, one might say. Uh, but my kids were, they, they really enjoyed it. So that's another type. And then I guess the last one is commercial vessels. Uh, Right now I'm on the ferries where as soon as it gets any reduced visibility, nighttime, darkness, fog, um, I get uh, two ABs with me up on the bridge. One's steering, one's watching, and I'm navigating and using all the tools. Uh, But there's tugboats where I'm up there for six hours all by myself. Um, So I have to be the entire bridge team. Um, for operating that boat. So I, I guess there's so many different ways that I look at night sailing mm-hmm. and how I approach it. Uh, the Bowden was probably the most interesting for me because that's best practices. Uh, and, and everything, yeah. a lot of the stuff that we did on the Bowden came from the SEA uh, book of, of uh, operations. You know, we, I, did you guys use, use Swedish watches generally on those? 
Yeah, yeah, six six four four four. Yeah, which I I never had used that, and I learned how to to set that system up, which works great for yeah. fatigue management because it gives more people a little bit extra break. Uh, yeah. But you can't do that on any boat. I mean, it, it takes a lot of organization to set up that type of watch. But most and and man and and people and people and but most of the yeah most of my commercial experience it's been six and six you know you're you're on six you're off six and it yeah. and it makes for a completely different way of operating a boat and fatigue management becomes a lot bigger issue uh, when you're doing it that way it does yeah six after about three days you're pretty spent I've done it yeah. Yeah. yeah, that sounds hard. Uh, I know our son, when he was doing his um, routine, working on the uh, boats up in Alaska, he'd do 12 on, 12 off. And <laughs> I know. <sighs> yeah, I don't know how you do that. I can't imagine that. <laughs> we have this very organic um, method of watch keeping when it's just Jamie and I, and it's sort of like a three to five hours at night, and then it's a whole lot more loosey-goosey during the day. But um, Interesting. something different works for everyone, right? Well, one, one of my interesting nighttime uh, sea stories is uh, I was engaged in trying to get maritime students interested in the inland rivers and wa you know Mississippi waterways, the inland, inland water. And I got invited to go out and go on a 1,200-foot barge going down the Mississippi. And the guy that would stand that watch was six hours standing up with a joystick uh nobody else up there but him uh and steering uh, the mississippi which is a pretty amazingly challenging waterway and he would be right there for six hours and it's like mm -hmm. whoa that yeah, that was a quite an eye-opener for me and, and i always thought oh That's yeah going, going down the mississippi you'll see little villages kids fishing with poles. there's nothing on the mississippi <laughs> It is the darkest, <laughs> bleakest waterway in the on the planet, except for the major cities you might go through. Uh, really? I, but yeah, it, it because the flood zone is like twenty miles out on either side. Oh, I see. Oh, wow. But it was interesting. To, I would not have thought of that. Yeah, it's it's a uh, it's a completely different place than I thought it would be, uh, and a lot of my students were not interested in it. You know, they were from the northeast or west coast, and the idea. of that type of a watch uh, wasn't something that was very appealing to them. But but mm -hmm. as far as working at night, I don't think there's anybody in the world that does it better than the uh, Mississippi River uh, pilots. They were amazing. And tell me, what are you doing at night, Ben, on your what three to I five doing? hour watches? Yeah. Oh, boy. Um, it's a great time for contemplating naval examination. <laughs> um, I mean... <laughs> It really, it really is. I think one of the reasons that I crave it so much right now is that life has been incredibly hectic for the last stretch. And the idea of a passage, and especially of being in the ocean at night, feels like it will be this incredible balm to all of the chaos of, yeah, this last mm -hmm. period. The chance yeah. to like to unplug and to think. And now I know none of that is all of the like stuff we're supposed to do and things like that. I just feel like there is this beauty and um and kind of incredible grace that happens when you're at sea at night and i miss it terribly mm. that's a total non-answer <laughs> i can actually tell you about what we do <laughs> but i miss i miss the carpet of stars i miss how mm. utterly incredible it is to look up there 
and try to find constellations and to be far enough out that the stars are so bright and so cluttered that you have to work to find the constellations instead of being near shore in light polluted areas where you're like, right, there's the bright one. That must be this, you know, <laughs> that must be Orion's mm -hmm. shoulder <laughs> um, yeah. to actually have like so many that you that you get to work at it a little bit. And one of my favorite, favorite things, too, is to take the Milky Way and try to time my watch based on the timing of the Milky Way shifting wow. across the horizon, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Fun. I'm ready to go. Where do I, where do I sign up? To see that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, we hope to head to Hawaii in June. Wow. <laughs> um, I was think, thinking about this and I was thinking, you know what? We probably stand watch outside. Right on a small sailboat, mm. you're usually outside in the cockpit. You're standing watch outside, right. or in the companion way, but you're outdoors. Uh, you know, outside. And then when I worked on tugboats, you're in this glassed-in bridge, and it's a completely different experience. You can't really feel that wind. I sometimes you're like, mm -hmm. is it cloudy? I don't know. I can't actually tell. Let me step outside the door and see. You know, are the clouds mm. overhead? What's happening? So you're a little dis. So it's instrument dis sailing um, versus sensory sailing. Yeah, you're disconnected from the, the environment to some degree. And I just wanted to talk about that a little bit. John, you've probably spent a lot of time inside the wheelhouse there behind glass. And, and, but you've also probably spent some time out on the boat. And, for example, you're out in it. Um, and talk about the differences between those two and, and how it affects uh, how you run your watches and think about nighttime sailing. Well, I think my background in sailing makes me constantly aware of what's going on outside because... I know that the you know the environmental the wind and the tide and the current are really affecting you even if you're on a 120 foot tugboat towing a 400 foot barge. So I'm one of those people that even when I'm in the wheelhouse, I if I have can I'll have the window open. I'll go out on the bridge wing. Uh, a lot of the tugs today are set up with autopilots, so you can get on your course, check all your navigation, and then go step outside. Uh, so I think uh, I may be an exclusive club in the towing industry in that way, but uh, I do think it's really important to be aware of the environment, what's going on outside. Uh, on the Bowdoin, I, I, always, uh, I was always wondering to myself why Admiral McMillan built this beautiful schooner to go to the Arctic with no pilot house. Uh, you you mm -hmm. stand right on deck. Well, it, it, it became quite apparent to me he had 12 college students on there, and he never stood a night watch. Uh, <laughs> right. And he, he, you, he, up yeah, there. Yeah, and the pilot house. They got to build character. Yeah, the, 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 the chart room and all the navigation equipment, which wasn't much then, but all of that is right forward of the, of the, the steer, steering station. And uh, those, those students, uh, they're doing the full outside environmentally impacted watches you know, throughout the night. And it's cold when you go to Newfoundland, Labrador, even mm -hmm. in the summertime, it's it, it, standing 30 minutes up on the bow, even in July can be pretty cold. So I always wonder why you didn't have a wheelhouse. I think a wheelhouse is really important uh, of some kind, a chart table system place that you can get to and get out of the weather. Um, if you like some of the schooners that I've worked on, didn't have that. And you would do all your navigating mm -hmm. up on the cabin top. Uh, and, and when the weather gets bad and everything gets starts to go to hell, uh, you know, not having a nice, dry, warm place to you know, concentrate on the, the navigation of the boat, I think is important. So if I was redesigning the Bowdoin, well, I'm not sure I should say this. I'll probably have people who will write me letters for years, but I would have put I would have put a pilot house on. Uh, yeah. Just 
just to get the people out of the weather for that, you know, 30 minutes, 40 minutes or whatever they are. But yeah, I think you're, you're both right. Uh, in, in the fact that being outside is a whole different, uh, appreciation for, for, for sailing and, like Dion said, you know, seeing the beautiful stars and the phosphorescence and all that. Uh, the tugboat is, or, or not just any tugboat, work boats in general are are places yeah. of uh, uh, quiet sanctity um, until it, until everything goes to hell and then they're not. <laughs> on the bridge, on the bridge, you mean? Yeah, they are. Quiet sanctity on the bridge. And how do you feel about the? I remember when I was working on tugs in Baltimore. Um, and you know you're in a city there. A lot of light reflection on that glass, and it's very, actually kind of difficult to see out the glass sometimes because lights behind you, and you know there's a lot of reflections on the glass itself. You, you must have been on an old tugboat, because yeah, I was. As yeah. they've developed them, most tugboats now have t- uh, slanted windows ah, that yeah. go uh, for both shedding water and and that and weather, but also it does just uh-huh. what you're talking about it. Uh, the reflection is going up to the ceiling, not at your eyes. Uh, uh, older yeah. older tugboats that I uh, cut my teeth on did have just those. And so that was yeah, extremely important up. to understand how to eliminate all backscatter light that you possibly can. And then, and if you don't have light in there, it's not going to reflect off the windows. Uh, so you just get down yeah. to, you know, every little LED pilot light or chart light or whatever you, you get those all reduced so that you have very very little distraction in your bridge yeah it's super important yeah it makes makes it yeah this, make, this was i think this tug was built in 82 so yeah you know, it, it might relatively it might have had you know flat glass because <clears throat> as they develop they did. like if you get on a modern tugboat today you'll see that yeah. they all those windows are slanted mm-hmm. and most of them have 360 degree windows and windows looking up yeah so They've taken the idea of being outside that we were discussing, and and put you in a nice warm, dry put place. Put inside. And, but inside <laughs> and and heated. Uh, I think it improves the the bridge team to have a quiet environment, not affected by wind and weather. Uh, but it right. you, it isn't quite as romantically fun <laughs> for sure. Uh, yeah, good points, John. Thank you. All right, any other thoughts on that? Night vision was what kind of what we're talking about. And John, you'd mentioned something in the right. in earlier about the uh, the LED lights where you mentioned you emailed me something about this. Yep. The, the the LED lights that are showing up on fishing boats and um, I don't know if you've ever seen this be and maybe you have, but uh, all the lobster boats now have these like massive strips of LED lights that are like new headlights that they want so they can see everything. They can see everything in whatever range that light projects on the water, but beyond that, they can't see anything. I yeah. would assume. Right. Yeah. And then they're they're anytime they're heading towards you, pointing their bow towards you, you're completely blinded you're blind. by these lights. Yeah. So that's what we have here in Mexico in the Gulf of California Sea of Cortez. Um, it's the shrimpers, and they have these very 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 bright lights, and it is completely right. blinding. Um, and uh, yeah, it's a little bit disorienting for us to be near them. At least we can't miss them. Um, I'll take that over sailing at night. I remember off the coast of Sri Lanka, and there was like a fleet of little fishing boats out there, and they did not have good radar uh, prints. I was, oh, I mean, mm-hmm. and I was very concerned about bumping into them. What we ended up doing was taking a flashlight and shining it up on our sail. We had our main up. And the main, we didn't, I think we were motor sailing. I don't think the main was much more than decorative and stability a bit, you know, but, but it also gave us a way of being really obviously in a place. And, and then 
a little boat would like selectively turn on the light that it had when it was close enough that we had to take evasive measure. Well, you, you picked up a topic that uh, I feel short, very strongly about, uh, and, and I've noticed it a lot yeah. in the, uh, the the ferry vessel industry, is that it, it's mostly fishing boats, but it's becoming more, yachts are doing it more and more too, big power boats. You know, you can go over to, to uh, the local marine store here and buy, you know, a 20 inch panel of these lights that is so bright that it's like daylight for it looks like it looks like a lighthouse at, at 30 miles out it's just so bright you can't even look at it and i took it up with uh, some of the local uh safety organizations i'm a member of and the coast guard doesn't really want to deal with it because if you look at the rules of the roads it, it says how what the minimum brightness of your lights can be you right. know for yeah for running lights and so forth but it doesn't say about the maximum or whether they should be on but one of the things I keep pounding on is that you're not supposed to embarrass the navigation of another vessel. And yeah. so, yes. so when I'm on a, on a when I'm on a tugboat, I've got a spotlight on some of the boats I work on that'll, you know, burn a hole in you. Uh, but <laughs> you you turn them on, you look, and then you turn them off. Mm -hmm. And yeah. that's what that's not embarrassing the navigation of another vessel. But some of these lights are pretty bad, and it, it's going to happen that that regulations will come in place because the way they're using them is they're on all the time. Uh, they'll have them both for the stern, for the safety of their crew. And they're looking ahead, uh, you know, to see other lobster gear or whatever. They don't run over it, but boy, it, it is very, very challenging to run boats uh, in, in heavy fishing areas. When you go across the German bank on your way up across the Bay of uh, no fun day, I call it. Mm. <laughs> uh, there's uh there's a lot of fishing that goes on out there at the German bank. And generally what I would advise our students to do is just to steer around the German bank, even if it costs you another six hours of cruising, mm -hmm. because once you get in there, they're fishing, they're not paying attention to you and mm -hmm. you can't see what they're doing. You can't even see their running lights because of the brightness of their, their deck lights. Wow. So uh, you can't, you can't always do that. I mean, you know, you can't go around Jeffrey's Ledge if you're, you're you know, heading offshore. Uh, but uh, it, it definitely is something that is a mm -hmm. problem. We certainly went around Georgia's Bank on the way back from Bermuda last time for that exact reason, just yeah. went yeah, to the it, east it, of it. it. Stay out of the fleet. Yeah, I mean, you could see it on AIS, how many vessels were there, you know, 100, 100 fishing boats in this little tiny area. So I'm just going to yeah. go around it. So one thing that's... Can we talk about AIS? Yes. Yeah, ahead, we can. Well, I was, that, you know, that's exactly where I was going with that, Beyond. One of the things that's, that's helped in that regard is that more and more fishing vessels, as well as everybody else, every commercial vessel is using AIS, um, the automated information system. So now when you approach uh, that German fishing bank, you can see the 30 vessels and you can see where their headlines are, where they're going and you can avoid them at a little closer range than you might have back before that. AIS has been mm -hmm. the most amazing thing. We're, we're running out of excuses for getting in trouble on the water with all the uh, advances in electronics. Agreed. So I'm curious, from a commercial standpoint, you can you can help debunk something for me that I've, I've wondered about and maybe worried about a little bit, which is that on a commercial vessel, could that AIS at the bridge be filtered so that it's showing class A and not class B? Us little folks. It, it can, and that's a problem. I mean, not a problem, but it's an issue. Because if you go into New York Harbor and you don't dither out yeah. uh, the, the, it's crowded. The, it, it, yeah, it's it's just a, it's just a blanket of 
little little uh, triangles there going every which way. Perfect example. Good practice is when you're coming into a place like New York or someplace and you want to dither out those uh, smaller vessels, mm-hmm. a standing order would be from time to time, turn it back on, you know, just like every 20 minutes, mm-hmm. just turn it on for a second and then turn it back off. But you're right, that is uh, that, that definitely is an issue because there are so many boats now that are being equipped with it that it's changing. Like on, on my own right. boat, I opted to not have one that puts out a signal. I just read all the signals of all the other vessels. Uh-huh. Yeah. My feeling there, like I probably saved three thousand dollars, but also I, I I really feel like I'm a, a cautious safe mariner and I want to watch where right. all the other vessels are and I'm gonna follow the rules of the road yeah. and they're they're gonna probably yeah. see me on radar. Um when I need to, but I, I also can call them by name, which mm-hmm. is a huge, right. you can call them. That's a huge difference. Huge. Like when I was on Bowdoin yes. before we had that, you'd, you'd go up, that's a heavy traffic zone from Halifax down around Cape Sable. And you'd see this ship coming and you were clearly bearing down on you. And then you'd have to call them on the radio and identify where they were, what their speed was. And by the time you got halfway through it, the, the, the watch standard was like, I don't know what that's all about. But, yeah, whatever. <laughs> but now, now you get on there and you say Irving Canada, Irving Canada. You call them by name, and it, mm-hmm. it's that's a that's an amazing safety thing for working at night. When we departed, we were able to get a receiver, but we we're not able yet for a private boat to get a transponder, and mm-hmm. so we were receive only uh, AIS for uh, seven or eight years. And I guess it was around 2013, 2014 that we got a transponder. But I remember 2013, the first time we came in, or yeah, 2013, first time we came into Singapore and whatever software we're using 10 years ago to interpret uh, the AIS targets literally would crash every few minutes because we would hit a <laughs> thousand in our like whatever tight little circle around Singapore uh... and it would just go cannot compute. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so yeah, being able to filter, uh, as you say, dither, to be able to get to the relevant ones is super important. And part of that can be just zooming way in for Singapore is what we ended up doing. But there was so much traffic and sometimes it was moving so quickly that that could be, you know, we felt like maybe it wasn't always enough. But I'll tell you, when we switched to a transponder, and one of the reasons we did it was that, well, one, they were available. And uh, although it was costly, it wasn't absurd. But uh, countries were starting to require it in Southeast Asia. We were told that we would need to be able to demonstrate that we could uh, push a signal. And I don't think that ever got enforced. But anyway, we bought one. And what we noticed in our uh, ocean passages after that was that commercial vessels would anticipate and make minute course corrections that would increase that CPA and give us safe distance while probably being maximally efficient for them in terms of fuel, like there was no like last minute crazy stuff that happened. And uh, previous to that, we had maybe more more later notice uh, course corrections that would happen. Interesting. And they started calling us every once in a while. And I love mm-hmm. that. I mm-hmm. love that so much. And it's always just been someone who's bored on the bridge. who's like, yeah, we're here in the middle of the South Atlantic. And there's, totally. hey, and there you are too. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah. And I think, uh, I mean, I've just watched the electronics industry changing so rapidly in the past 10, 15 years. Uh, that issue is, is is starting to be addressed already of being able to not just dither out a certain class of boat, but dither out vessels that are beyond 
you know, and something you can set, say, more than eight miles out. I don't really care about that yeah. Yeah. or whatever you decide for your parameter. And then those boats, boats will disappear off of there until you, you get into that parameter. And they're going to figure that out. It's going to get better and better and better. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I do have an opinion on this AIS thing. And it, and it comes from when I was working in, in Baltimore on the tugboats. Those guys turned to me because they knew I sailed and they said, what's wrong with that boat? It's AIS is not working. It was a small sailboat sailing down the harbor. It's like, you're a sailor. Why isn't there, there AIS on? I said, we're not required to have AIS. He said, what? He, he really had no idea. And it, it made me realize that some people who are in the commercial industry may think that all vessels have AIS and that those who are not transmitting do not exist. And mm. so in my, in my opinion, I believe we should all, if some have to have it, I think we should all have to have it so that you don't have this this ambiguity. Are they on mm-hmm. the AIS? Are they not on AIS? I think. I don't know. Yes and no. That's like a poor tax on boating. Well, it kind of I'll, is. I'll, yeah. I'll be the devil's advocate on that. Uh, yeah. uh, when I was first sailing, we used AM radios. That's that's how old I am. Um, and they were a big a unit and very. not every vessel had them and small boats didn't have them at all. And then they add, mm-hmm. then then they came up with VHF, which got very very cheap, and everybody could have them. Well, if you've gone through Long Island Sound, you know how terrible the VHF is. It's just a constant. There's and it's so rude. It's appalling. So commercial vessels should have AIS, and and that includes anybody that's making money on the water, windjammers, uh, tugboats, ferries. They should all have it. But if you're a pleasure boat and you're working there. You should have the ability to read it and see it, but not be on it because that's what happens. It gets so complex, so many targets mm-hmm. that, right. uh, and, and so I, I feel it's like the obligation of the pleasure boater to look out after commercial traffic and commercial traffic to do the same. But uh, at the same time, if you're going down a recommended route, you know, as a towing a 400 foot barge, that little sailboat should see you and say, yeah, I'm not going to get anywhere near that. that. That's He's making a living, and I'm just out here having a good day. So I, I think if everybody had it, it would become uh, counterproductive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. I, I agree with you. I, I'm not sure I feel that we should all have it now, but the, I just I just want that people understand that that not everybody has it. Yeah. It blew mm-hmm. my mind that the, these guys, you know, multiple surprising. people on this one tugboat thought everyone should right. have AIS. So it was like, wow, is, okay. Yeah. But yeah, too many targets. And then also, it's, it, then it ter- turns into you're playing a video game. <laughs> what do you need to look out your window for? You just look at your screen and see where all the boats are. This is exactly what I was thinking there? earlier, too. I feel like people treat it as the source instead of their eyeballs. And the most important mm-hmm. aid to navigation is your eyeballs. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> well, uh, working at the academy with, you know, young gen xers and millennials you'd get out there teaching them how to do you know proper navigation at night and they would stop looking out the window um and i had one one quick story where i had a, a student i knew was a familiar with penobscot bay He'd been working on windjammers and he was the captain for the for the day you know the, the designated captain and he's steering right for an island that i know he's seen a million times on a schooner and just because that headline made it look like he was going to clear it. But I said, I, I said, hey, look out the window right now. Look out the window. 
And it, you know, it was one of those nights where you could still see a little bit. That situational awareness uh, of just being on the electronics is a detriment to everybody. And that's what, what, what we, when, when I taught when I was at Maine Maritime is to, you know, use all of your senses, look, you know, get your boat on autopilot if that works and use, look at your radar, look at your, your chart plotter, but then look out the window, you know, uh, on a single person bridge. Mm -hmm. And then on watch keeping, that's what the, they did. One person, my three person watch would be looking out the window. One would be steering and one would be looking at the electronics. So sometimes you have to do all three of those jobs yourself. Mm -hmm. Right. When you're on the ferry, you do, right? Uh, well, actually, they've got a pretty good bridge team now where as soon as if, if, if it's nighttime, dusk till dawn, there's always uh, three people on the bridge. Oh, wow. There's a, an AB or an OS, another AB and myself, mm -hmm. one steering, Great. one's looking. And then the captain usually is just looking at navigation and also looking out the window. Wow. And texting his wife. Yeah, that's nice. But on, <laughs> but on a lot of tugboats, yeah, it's just one person. Yeah, um, it is, and you yeah. really don't you don't really stand a bow watch that you know you, because your windows are usually so close to the bow you're you're the bow watch and you're you're 25 feet mm -hmm. up. Right. Uh, but it, uh, it 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 definitely uh, becomes a whole other game when you're a single person bridge. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's interesting too to lean in that on that from a, a safety standpoint because I think of the 360 visual scan that we do on watch um, every 10 to 15 minutes as being essential um, and, and even more frequently, right? If it's coastal and there's lots of traffic and things like that, but you need to also check your screens. And even if you've got night uh, display colors, there's still a bit of an eyeball fry and you need time to recover from that to be able to do your 360 again. And when you have like the three people you described, that's, that seems so luxurious and ideal. <laughs> um, and we never have that, right, on our little mm -hmm. sailboats. Um, and finding that balance and then the, the judgment call um, of, of how, to, how to manage it. And maybe it changes your, the timing of your watches. Yeah, I, I, and I think that's uh, like when you're a single person bridge, it becomes much more of a challenge to accomplish those things. And, uh, you know, uh, but when, you, when you've got an extra person or two or my extra person is the crew member I call Otto Pilot. <laughs> uh, oh, that is my favorite crew member. <laughs> they, they never complain. Otto's, they Otto rocks. They don't eat the mid rats. Everything is good. But yep. when you're sailing along on autopilot and you can get everything adjusted, that gives you a, you know, you say, okay, everything's good. I'm clear for three miles here. Nothing's around me. Now I can go out and take a look around and, and get my eyes uh, reacclimated back and forth between the bridge and outside. Uh, but yeah, that, that's a challenge, a real challenge uh, to do that. And most of the commercial vessels that I work on today, this, this time, have, have a, a minimum of two radars. Mm -hmm. So one is set for your you know, look ahead distance, and then one was usually for closer ab aboard. Uh, you know, maybe one's set at a half a mile and the other one's at seven or six miles or 12 miles. Uh, but that closer one is your, your ability to look around the boat without actually going out and looking around the boat. You can see everything that would be a target mm -hmm. out there, except for the dolphin. Mm -hmm. Hopefully. Well, so let me tell you about sailing in Southeast Asia on a cruising boat. <laughs> and, the, and the things that don't show up on radar. Um, a couple in particular, this is one of the notes that I'd made to, uh, to you, Ben, that I couldn't, I, okay. I, I should have saved myself and I didn't, but it's, um, there's something called a FAD, F-A-D, uh, a fish aggregation device. And it might not be any more than some rattan mat 
and a couple of, of sticks in it um, that's sort of that's secured or maybe even floating. And it's used to draw hmm. fish, right? They collect under there for safety and wow. then fishermen come and clean it all up. Um, they don't show up on radar, at least not the radar that a lot of us have. I guess there are better and better um, radar available, you know, HD or whatever. Uh, maybe we'll afford that eventually. I don't know. Um, there's that. The other one that I remember really vividly that was incredibly jarring was we're on the top coast of New Guinea Island on the Indonesian side of uh, Papua New, uh, New Guinea. And it was kind of, the, the, I think, just past the, uh, the monsoonal season, rainy season. And uh, there's tremendous timber up there in the mountains and it washes out into the rivers. Right. And we were on a, you know, a dark and stormy night. Well, actually just a dark night um, and in company with another boat. And they were just ahead of us and thank goodness they passed right next to the boat and could warn us to avoid it must have been a huge tree and what we saw was just the top of the root ball the root ball rather and i mean it was it was not just our freeboard height it was not just our dodger height it was taller than that it was massive that would have been a real problem if we'd run into it we couldn't see it at all no visual on that just that they had warned us and gave us direction yeah the uh the mats that you were talking about so they don't require them to put some kind of a high boy or something on that you know uh, no No, john no let me tell you about (laughs) sailing in the developed world (laughs) okay Well, (laughs) honestly, we're so spoiled in the U.S. We're so spoiled um, where aids to navigation actually exist and they have lights and they get maintained. Most of the places that we have been, literally most of them don't. There's a bamboo stake stuck in the reef that identifies where the channel probably kind of is. Was. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah, that that represents a whole other challenge for watch keeping at night for sure. It it does, does, yeah. And especially at night because no lights. Yeah. Literally no lights. Or 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 here's a fun twist on on lights. Actually, in a lot of Malaysia, peninsular Malaysia, we spent about a year and a half um, back and forth on the peninsula, and the Malay and Thai fishing boats have these like flasher lights, and they come in kind of a rainbow of colors, little LED lights, and you know what colors they're they're popular in. Red and green. Right. So they're like they're mimicking handy nav lights in the mm-hmm. boat. But you just mm-hmm. have no idea. And you can't count on them. You just have to be like, right, there's a light, avoid. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. And that that's something I've heard people say. They just like I, I just avoid all lights out there at night sometimes. So. Yeah. yeah. If in doubt, yeah, if you can't confirm what it is. Yeah. Well that, that yeah, which I at that point I try to encourage people to actually read the rules of the road and learn the lights a little bit. Yeah. So that you don't have to avoid mm-hmm. everything. You can understand what those lights are meaning. Well in on my own personal boat, yeah. I prefer cruising at night because now that I'm not on a, a sailing vessel, the uh, the winds are usually calm and mm-hmm. I can make great distance. Uh, a lot of the inexperienced boatmen are afraid to go out in the dark or don't like to. Mm-hmm. So I don't encounter a lot of them. So one of my, my ways of operating sometimes is to get underway at like, you know, midnight and cruise until mm-hmm. 8 a.m. to the destination I, I am, get first light coming into the port. And uh, I, I love doing it that way. Um, but that's because that's I'm comfortable sailing at night. 
and, and I go on a straight yeah. and I can go on a straight mm-hmm. line. And you know where you're going or where and where you're leaving from and what the risks are that go with it. That local nighttime knowledge, I think, can be so, so helpful and, and help you make that decision. I remember I was not on the boat, but when, when we bought Totem in 2007, Jamie delivered it up with a couple of friends to Puget Sound. And they were coming into the Strait of Juan de Fuca and turning into Puget Sound, headed down towards where we were living, Bainbridge Island. And there was so much uh, light noise. It's not really light pollution. It's just all the lights on shore that it was really difficult to identify lights, identifying boats. And there's, of course, there's a ton of commercial traffic. And they got kind of frighteningly close to one boat where I'm sure their lights met Coast Guard requirements, but they weren't as bright as what was distracting from it nearby and around it and on shore. And uh, that's kind of scary. But when you've got the local knowledge, you, you know, to at least, uh, you know, have, have that ticked off as one less factor, it sounds very nice. Especially after, boy, sailing in the U.S. East Coast, it's been some years now, but the amount of disruptive chatter on the VHF is so destructive. <laughs> It's so frustrating. Yeah. yeah. yeah, that, yeah that, I can't sure. even. Like the idea of being at night and not having that sounds blissful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that definitely is uh, the, the radio is an issue. And, and backscatter lights. I mean, that's, that's I think, uh, the bane of any coastal uh, boat operator. One of the things that, that I found is kind of handy for me is I, I have a, 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 set, a set of uh, different types of shooting glasses, you know, yellow, blue, pink. Mm. And mm-hmm. sometimes if you're coming into an area that's really loaded with, backscatter and you're trying to pick out lights you can put on those different types of lenses and they're not you know they're just they're meant for shooting they're meant to just protect your eyes but they're also really great in fog yellow lights yellow shooting glasses in the fog uh allow you to cut through the fog significantly more than just your natural eye oh really i did not know that gtk writing that one down (laughs) cool um I gonna ask you. Oh yeah, I was just gonna say. As far as learning some of those things, I remember sailing um, way back when, early on, some schooner I was working on, and trying to decipher the navigation buoys against the background lights, uh, you know, of the city we were coming into or town, and um, just finding that so difficult. Yet the crew, I was a student on the boat, the crew was just like, oh yeah, no, these are the buoys and th- those are the town lights. And I was like, wow, how do you, how can you guys tell that? And I think it just comes down to practice, right? I mean, that's, that's all there is to it. You, you, you do it enough and, and you can begin to figure it out. Is, is there anything else that helps you figure that out? Well, I'll, I'll throw my two Using cents. all of your aids at your disposal. Yeah. Go ahead, John. Well, what I was going to say is that one of the things I really encourage people that I'm teaching uh, is that take advantage of daylight uh, to, mm-hmm. to, Let's just say that you're making a regular run into uh, Portland Harbor. Well, it's really good if you don't waste that time when it's beautiful and sunny by just looking at all the scenery. Look at your radar. Look what the picture looks like. Look what the buoy looks like on the radar, where it is. And then by getting that acclimation of, of what that radar image looks like, even when you don't need it, when you do need it, it becomes really, really clear to you. And also understand what the city looks like on, on a radar, because that also allows you to kind of discern what you're looking at and say, oh, yeah, that's, I'm looking at the radar, I'm looking at the lights, that's the city. Yeah, that's, so that buoy should be a little bit to the right of, you know, Eastern Promenade. But take advantage of that time when you do have good visibility to use your electronic equipment, even though you don't need it. 
because when you do need it at night, um, it's going to be so much more useful to you. Mm -hmm. That's a really good point. Yeah. We talk about it in terms of building muscle memory and it's another kind of muscle memory to be so familiar with those routines in good conditions so that we need them in bad conditions. Yeah. Uh, you're not further impaired. Yeah. I think you're ahead of the game. And, and then the other thing I always recommend because I'm on so many different types of bridges, I'll get on a, you know, one ferry one day and then a tugboat another day. The electronics world is changing so fast. It's a lot easier to play with that radar in the daylight and start to figure out how what the what the the buttons are, the tools are, how right. how to dim it. Right. I mean, you would think that every piece of electronic equipment would have one button right in the front that says dim or bright, but they don't. Sometimes you've got to go through a whole set of little keystrokes to get to that. Uh, but if you do that in a nice sunny day when you've got plenty of visibility and you're going along, when you do that at midnight, that following night, you'll go, oh, yeah, that's how you do that. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that's really important. I, and I always emphasize that to people I'm working with that, that are getting on new bridges all the time. Take advantage of the daylight to get better at the nightlight, the, uh, the no light. How's that? <laughs> mm -hmm. Great tidbit. I love that one. That's super good. We do that. We do the same thing with radar because as you're learning radar, that is super, super helpful to not use it to start using it in the fog is not the right time to start learning radar, <laughs> right? Sure. Learn it Learn it on a sunny day. Yep. You can correlate what you see to what you see on the screen. And, and the electronics has you know, another bad side to it is that a lot of people that don't have a lot of experience on boats get onto, you know, let's, let's say they've got a 40-foot high-speed motorboat and they've got a chart plotter and they go, hey, that's where I am and there I'm going and they'll go 40 knots because they, they just figure... I don't know that they're going to see the other guy before they hit them, but sometimes they have a radar, but they don't have never used it. So they just go by the chart plotter. More than once I've had a boat whiz by me with no radar at 40 knots. Mm -hmm. To me, that's, that's right up there with following behind a snow plow and passing them in Maine. I mean, it's like, nope. <laughs> <laughs> right. yeah. yeah. So AIS and radar, I think quick tangent for folks yeah. that would be listening to the podcast is that, I think we've made it clear that they're both really important tools, but I wonder if some folks would think, can't I just have one or the other? Um, and if it's not been made clear yet, like abundantly, no, they do really different things. And mm -hmm. I'll add in a super important use of them, of radar at night that hasn't come up yet during our travels, which is that it's not about fog because we actually haven't seen a whole lot of that in the tropics. Mm -hmm. And it is, it's a, it's a bit about things like, uh, uh, Confirming shoreline, uh, aids navigation, uh, if you can, things like that. We actually, we have an AIS overlay on our chart plotter. And uh, and radar may even help you see other boats that are out there too. But our number one use for radar for our own safety on board is squalls, tracking and avoiding yeah. squalls. Oh, yeah, and that is maybe not something that the coastal North, most coastal North American sailors think about avoiding as much. Um, but sure, you know, uh, hurricane season further south, conditions are a little more volatile. Uh, it's still it's still an important use of radar and a really valuable use of radar. And there are different ways to use your radar uh, for squall avoidance and, and monitoring, but we found it invaluable for that. And when you're sailing at night, dang, you might be able to tell there's a squall coming, but you really might not other than there used to be stars there and now there are not stars there. Mm -hmm. What's coming? <laughs> And then mm -hmm. I can look at the radar and say, oh, and yeah. and mark the shape and see how it moves and it, which way is expanding and think about 
what do I need to do? How do I have to move the boat now? Do I need to reef or am I okay? Is it just going to pass behind me or is that going to suck the wind out? And I have to be, I have to make sure that the preventer is, is really set because that could cause a problem. Yeah. I think that goes right back into the idea of using radar in good weather. Uh, like for example, that fishing gear that you were talking about now, that one you were describing mm -hmm. may never show up on radar, but if you're going by it yeah. and you, and you've got your radar on, in the daylight and you adjust your radar to see what what does it take for me to actually see an image of that's that that's right that that's a real handy handy thing as well but uh, yeah yeah it um, it occurred to me that i was talking about the ways that radar wasn't useful for us and i needed to talk about the way in which it was incredibly invaluable for us uh as yes yeah, as yeah, tropical and is. subtropical cruisers it's my absolute pay favorite piece of equipment because it allows me to see things I can't see. When I was in the sailing world, uh, I used to use my radar to determine ley lines because uh, nice. you can see out clearly and put a, you go, I, I know I tacked through 45 degrees, I put a 45 degree EBL line and I know exactly mm -hmm. when I'm there. It's like, oh yeah, now go. I uh, love it. <laughs> Don't wait for that header. This is, now is the time. Um, shoot, what was I going to say? Oh, I lost it. Actually, that was what it was. We lost our radar and oh, yeah. it was actually really stressful. We were at the kind of eastern end of Indonesia in the Spice Islands around Ambon um, and we were anchored off a volcano and volcano. I mean, mm. there's a lot of volcanoes in Indonesia, it just kind of goes with the territory. They tend to attract lightning. And hmm. this one, um, even though it, we did not have to take a lightning strike, but there was lightning near enough to us that it ultimately fried the radar that we had. Now we were in rural Indonesia and Indonesia is a very difficult place to ship things into. And we literally were at the front end of what was gonna be six months of working west through the archipelago. And and for scale, folks who aren't as familiar, it's like wider east to west than the United States. It's huge. So no mean feat to talk about getting from one end of this country to the other end of it, to the place where we might be able to get a replacement radar. It actually took us, um, over a year before we were in a place that we could get a radar shipped in and throughout this time we're in a super squally zone um just below the equator wow yeah wow. stressful all right i do want to think about wrapping up and i would love you guys have given some great advice already but in a way of wrapping up how about some advice or things to think about for folks who have never sailed at night and your advice to them mm. I guess I would say one of the things I did already say was learn your navigational equipment when you don't need it and start to get good at it when you don't need it. Because as soon as you do, uh, you'll feel so much more comfortable doing that. That's that's one thing I think is really important. I think it's really important to uh, appreciate the fact that there are a lot of people that don't know the rules of the road and you've got to be uh, always on your guard for for vessels that are not going to behave the way you think they're going to. Um, and that's why I think the electronic equipment that's available out there now with, you know, AIS, VHF, being able to talk to vessels and kind of, because sometimes if you can't talk to them, that means they're not paying attention. And that's, that's a, that's a least short, just stay away from them and give it up. Even if you have yeah. to yeah. give up, give up some of your headway and just go dead in the water or whatever, let them go by that. I think that's probably a good idea. Uh, one of the things that I, I always emphasize to my students when we were teaching on May Maritime Academy is navigating the vessel is important, but not falling overboard is the other thing. If you lose someone at night, especially at sea, that would be a catastrophe of beyond belief. 
So we, we yeah. use all kinds of really great practices there with, you know, dust to dawn harnesses, PFDs. And we also had a piece of equipment, which I really recommend is a, it's a personal AIS. They only cost about $90. And what happens then is if someone goes overboard, it puts an AIS signal onto your chart plotter. It's really not meant so much for other vessels to come save your person. It's for you to save mm -hmm. them. On tugboats, it was a real case there where people would, you may not see a crew member for an hour or two hours because you know, he had no reason to come up to the bridge, but he fell overboard and you wouldn't know it mm -hmm. uh, until much later. And those AISs immediately it comes up on your chart and it's like, oh, you know, there's a problem. So in the world of rapidly changing electronics, I understand that the FCC, I think it's the FCC, has finally just approved one of these personal beacons, which is not just AIS, but is also a satellite beacon style oh, so it in does one both. device, which is awesome. Oh, so yeah, that, yeah. yeah, that's, yeah. that's definitely... They've been out there, but they weren't approved, so we couldn't buy them in the US and we couldn't register them mm. with NOAA. Now you can. Goodness. And then I, I guess the, yeah. other, the other thing would be fatigue management, is that come up with a way for however you cruise or however your voyage is planned to make sure people do get rest because almost all of the accidents and issues that I've encountered over the years are because people were tired. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, I think so. Right. Yeah, I just want on, on that quick subject that I just want to say, we, we did an experiment and tried all the different watch schedules. We did threes, we did fours, we did sixes, we did twelves, we did Swedish, we did, and just to try to figure out what works best for us. And I always encourage people to do that, find out what works best for yeah, you. Yeah, and, and it's one thing if you're- Yeah, totally agree. It's one thing if your crew's all 30, but if they're all 60, you got to come up with a different watch schedule. <laughs> mm -hmm. Adjust as you go. Yes, that's right. And adjust your watch schedules as needed. Yep. Mm -hmm. So if I was giving advice to someone getting ready to do their first night sailing, it would be probably super contextual depending on, you know, who are they and what's their background? Where are they going? Um, who's going to be with them? Um, but that's a cop out because that's easy to say. Uh, true as it is. And I think I would lean on on a couple of things. And the first one is how very important your senses are in addition to the things that we the tools that we learn how to use the tools are also priceless but that it is using your eyes uh using a uh, uh, sense of touch you know has vibration changed uh the smell things like that being able to really dial into the environment around you and uh, uh and how to be perceptive of change as, as a safety mechanism and then i also want to want to lean in on that fatigue awareness aspect because like John said, I think this is probably the culprit for most accidents that boaters get into. And if you are struggling to remain alert and on watch, you know, call uncle. We talk about having a safe word. <laughs> um, and I, I remember being a new parent and Jamie and I had a, had a phrase, if, um, if one of us said, can you hold the baby? That didn't mean, oh, after I go to the bathroom, oh, after I get a glass of water, oh, after, you know what? No, that meant take the baby out of my arms right now because I'm gonna do something really bad if I don't get a break like immediately. Um, and have something like that for watchkeeping, the non-negotiable, I have acknowledged that I have crossed that line and I need to I need to have you step in for me. And it's not a big deal, make sure it's not a big deal, but know what those signs are, that it's like being a little unsteady, maybe your eyes don't focus fast enough, maybe you don't think, you might not realize that you're not thinking as clearly, but kind of try to dial into what those are. And I guess I'll end with what uh, my husband described once. Jamie had a really great description for what Nightwatch can be like and feel like and, and how you just sort of watch the watery world around you unfold and, and you talked about it might sound like we've talked about with all of the lights and how hectic it can be and stuff at times, 
that it's like driving through New York City on a Friday night while you're jet lagged during a citywide power outage, right? <laughs> um, but it's not. 99% of the time, it's not. Mostly, it's more like being on a long stretch of open highway with some towns to rest and repair in. So we just stay on the road, we stay awake while we're driving, we slow down when the weather's not right, and we get to our destination and feel good, good about it. Good advice. Beautiful. All right. You guys, I want to wrap it up because it's been an hour and and a half, which is really long because it's been such a great conversation. So I've thoroughly oh, enjoyed I, this. And thank you, John, me for too. Like, helping me figure out that like class A, class B thing. I totally wondered about that. <laughs> well, it, it, and it, I, I'm very envious of people that sail, you know, great distances offshore. I just read a couple of books of, of uh, single handers and it's like, yeah, that, that's a whole nother game there uh, where you're out. It, for weeks at a time all by yourself and then all of a sudden you're in probably some of the busiest ports in the world you know going by them uh but the the sea traffic is amazing the world is really connected by the ocean and uh understanding what the commercial traffic is doing is really important i think for everyone uh, that's, that's that's cruising out there so great we'll have to we'll have to i'll keep track of you behan I'll, I'll friend you or something mm-hmm. awesome i'd love that thank you john i'll keep an eye out good well thank you guys so much i loved it very fun thanks for inviting me thank you ben yeah. always a pleasure thanks for listening you can subscribe to the morning muster wherever you get your podcasts or visit morsealpha.com you can also find us on instagram at morsealpha expeditions the music is by Tim Erickson, my brother, and you can find him at timericksonmusic.com. Until next time, stay found. <laughs>